1: You should love your car. That's
0: why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive
2: and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the wilds of Connecticut here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library... This is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. Now, I am all a Twitter, and you know that I am on Twitter, but in this case, I'm just a Twitter, which is to say, the last time we spoke, and really, I did all of the speaking, but the last time we spoke, it was like they were doing... Uh, one of those dirty jokes, one of those farmer's daughter's jokes, you know, some horny dude shows up at the farmer's house and he's like, Hey, you better leave my daughter alone. And oh, the daughter and the, and the guy. And you know, but that's what's happening with Jude and Sue. Sue is basically masquerading as a farmer's daughter, in this case, as a shepherdess because uh, she has these habiliments. And I didn't even look up what habiliments meant, but I think it just meant like she's wearing basically a potato sack because she's part of this college and she has to look all modest. But Jude knows and said as much that underneath those habiliments is a rockin' bod. And then they they were kind of wandering through the countryside between train stations they were going from one train station to another, seven miles across the heather, seven miles into basically Indian country where uh, nothing's going on. And she gets tired. They look for a place to rest. And lo and behold, there's a shepherd and his toothless mother. And they go in there and they're about to bed down for the night. Not together. Jude is going to stay with the shepherd and uh, Sue's going to stay with the uh, with the toothless crone. But... Hardy doesn't put them in this place. Right. Tom doesn't say, yeah, I'm just going to put them in this desolate place without something. Right. You know something. They're not going to wake up in the morning and then be like, did you have a good night's sleep? Yes, I did. How about you? Yes, let's go. That's not what's going to happen. And so we left on a little bit of a cliffhanger there with Sue saying, and Sue is quickly growing in my estimation. She's saying, I rather like this, said Sue, while their entertainers were clearing away the dishes outside all laws except gravitation and germination. Now, germination might be the least sexy word ever coined for doing it, but that's what she's talking about. And now Jude, I'm going back to the book now. And now Jude, I just saw the first sentence, is about to throw a wet blanket over everything because she says i rather like this and then jude says you only think you like it you don't you are quite a product of civilization said jude a recollection of her engagement reviving his soreness a little indeed i am not jude i like reading and all that but i crave to get back to the life of my infancy and its freedom Do you remember it so well? You seem to me to have nothing unconventional at all about you. Oh, haven't I? You don't know what's inside me. What? The Ishmaelite. Now, that seems like a very provocative thing to say when she says the Ishmaelite, because it's kind of a fancy word. I have no idea what an Ishmaelite is. So now I have to look that up. There's no footnote for it. Ishmaelite. Ishmaelite. All right. Let's see what it says. <clears throat> Come on, Google. What the hell? Oh, my internet's being a dick. All right. Well, we've only referenced it once before, but I I have in my possession a 20-volume dictionary that I purchased at the uh, library sale here in the wilds of Connecticut from, and this d- dictionary is from like 19... 19- nine or something and so I, I'm going to retrieve the volume which should have oh never mind it worked. Ishmaelites. according to the book of Genesis, Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael. Yeah, I figured that out Google the elder son of Abraham and the descendants of the 12 sons and princes of Ishmaelite. Fine. what does that mean to me? Okay so they come from Ishmael and talk to me about sex. According to the book of Genesis, Abraham's first wife, bloody, bloody, bloody historical records, Assyrian Babylonian genealogical attempt to trace the ancestry of the Arabs. So they're Arabic. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to set it aside for a moment because it's really just reinforcing what we already know about Sue, which is that she exists beyond modernity and beyond christianity. She is some other, she comes from some other place in time and so she's what she's saying is she is an ishmaelite. And Jude says, "In urban miss is what you are." He is such a dick. He's being a dick right now. Because she's basically saying, "Do what you want with me. Have me. I'm an ishmaelite." I mean, I don't know how those two things relate because I don't really know what an Ishmaelite is. But you understand, she's saying, I exist outside of this engagement to fill him. The shepherd, an urban missus what you are, she looked severe disagreement and turned away. And then you remember what I said about how the night is not going to pass without incident because Tom wouldn't do that to us. Here's the beginning of the next paragraph. The shepherd aroused them the next morning as he had said, <laughs> it was bright and clear and the four miles to the train were accomplished pleasantly when they had reached melchester and walked to the close and the gables of the old building in which she was again to be immersed rose before sue's eyes she looked a little scared i expect i shall catch it she murmured because she was out all night they rang the great bell and waited oh I bought something for you, which I had nearly forgotten, she said, quickly searching her pocket. It is a new little photograph of me. Would you like it? Would I? He took it gladly, and the porter came. There seemed to be an ominous glance on his face when he opened the gate. She passed in, looking back at Jude and waving her hand. So, That's it for Sue, I think. Not in terms of the story. But that was it. That was the moment when she was going to give herself over to her Ishmaelite ways. And he put the kibosh on them. Because Jude is so civilized. Because Jude is such a product of his own environment. He can't see the nose past his own goddamn face. (laughs) he can't see beyond the strictures of his own upbringing oh and i'm i'm wed to arabella and and sue is with Phillotson, and what will everybody think of us and blah blahdy blah blah. jude you stupid dick that's really what this episode should be entitled jude you stupid dick (sighs) all right let's pause for a word from our sponsors Welcome back. I took a little breather uh, because I was feeling pretty annoyed with Jude. I called him a stupid dick. And you're not supposed to do that uh, when you're talking about the classics. So I apologize to everybody. But I do have some sympathy for that stupid dick. And I have been Jude in my younger days. When, uh, uh, well, when Martha and I first got together... I've talked about this before, which is why I feel okay talking about it now. If you want to read about it, you can. In my book, You're Not Doing It, right, by Michael Ian Black. But when Martha and I first got together, Michael Ian Black is the author's name, it's also my name. When Martha and I first got together, when we first started dating, she was in Sue's position. She wasn't engaged, but she had a boyfriend. He was a little bit older. She was living with him but they weren't particularly happy. It wasn't, it wasn't a relationship that uh, was particularly fruitful emotionally. And we started flirting, Martha and I. And then there was a moment when we were essentially hanging out together. It wasn't really a date because she was living with her boyfriend and I didn't want to trespass. And she basically said, she essentially said, I want you to kiss me With in in not those words. But, and, and she was frustrated with me that I hadn't done so because I was Jude in that position. I couldn't see past my own nose. I couldn't see. I was afraid of, of overstepping and of breaking the conventions of the day. I didn't want to be that guy, but I kissed her. And then, um, and then we got married. I mean, there was, it was probably a longer path than that from the time I kissed her to, to when we got married, but that's what happened. So... In my case, Martha was saying, basically, I'm an Ishmaelite. And I was saying, oh, no, you're just an urban miss. Well, she was an Ishmaelite. And I had to discover my own Ishmaeli nature to fulfill my destiny with her. All right. That was the end of chapter two. Chapter three. So she's gone back inside, right? She's gone back into the close. And I think that's the end of Sue. I think she is now going to go through college and she's now going to just fulfill what she was supposed to do all along. Just get her degree, marry Phillotson, and be miserable, and Jude will be miserable too. Chapter three. The 70 young women of ages varying in the main from 19 to 1 and 20, though several were older, who at this date filled the species of nunnery known as the training school at Melchester, formed a very mixed community which included the daughters of mechanics, curates, surgeons, shopkeepers, farmers, dairymen, soldiers, sailors, and villagers. They sat in the large schoolroom of the establishment on the evening previously described, and word was passed round that Sue Bridehead had not come in at closing time. (gasps) Scandal. She went out with her young man, said a second-year student, who knew about young men, (laughs) and Miss Tracely saw her at the station with him. She'll have it hot when she does come. She said he was her cousin, observed a youthful new girl. That excuse has been made a little too often in this school to be effectual in saving our souls, said the head girl of the year, dryly. So it's just a bunch of, you know, motley, horny girls who've been sent to the nunnery to mend their ways. I mean, some of them are probably there sincerely in some capacity, but they're just girls. You know, they're girls the way all girls are. And that is not to, to put a slight on girls. It is acknowledging their nature the same way boys would, would be exactly the same if they were in that situation and probably worse. But, you know, you remember earlier in the book when I, I said Hardy just clearly doesn't like women or he's got a problem with women because the only women we had met had been terrible. Well, I may have to revise that. I may I may have to adjust my opinion of Hardy's opinion of women. He's finally opening the door to us understanding his own understanding of women. And it seems like he does have an understanding despite his protestations regarding Sue. He was just kind of kind of keeping her hidden under habiliments, as it were. The fact was that only 12 months before there had occurred a lamentable seduction of one of the pupils who had made the same statement in order to gain meetings with her lover. The affair had created a scandal and the management had consequently been rough on cousins ever since. Well, it feels to me like Thomas Hardy's having a bit of uh, of a laugh here. You know, he's got his tongue planted firmly in cheek, and we have not known Tom to be particularly mirthful, but here he is, I think, poking a little fun. At nine o'clock, the names were called, Sue's being pronounced three times sonorously by Miss Traceley without eliciting an answer. At a quarter past nine, the 70 stood up to sing the evening hymn and then knelt down to prayers. After prayers, they went in to supper, and every girl's thought was, where is Sue Bridehead? Some of the students, who had seen Jude from the window, felt that they would not mind risking her punishment for the pleasure of being kissed by such a kindly-faced young man. Hardly one among them believed in the cousinship." Half an hour later, they all lay in their cubicles, their tender feminine faces upturned to the flaring gas jets, which at intervals stretched down the long dormitories, every face bearing the legend, the weaker upon it, as the penalty of the sex wherein they were molded, which by no possible exertion of their willing hearts and abilities could be made strong, while the inexorable laws of nature remain what they are. (laughs) And this is all on Martha at some point in the past underlined all of this. There are little underlined passages throughout this book, uh, which occurred through my wife's hand, I believe. And this is one of them. She has underlined the penalty of the sex wherein they were molded, which by no possible exertion of their willing hearts and abilities could be made strong, while the inexorable laws of nature remain what they are. I'm just going to keep reading and then we'll go back and talk about this. They formed a pretty suggestive, pathetic sight of whose pathos and beauty they were themselves unconscious, not true, and would not discover till amid the storms and strains of after years with their injustice, loneliness, childbearing and bereavement their minds would revert to this experience as to something which had been allowed to slip past them insufficiently regarded. Okay, maybe that is true. We all are unaware of our beauty and youth when we are beautiful and youthful. That's why they say youth is wasted on the young, because we have all our, our anxieties, our youthful anxieties, our youthful sort of self-hatreds and whatnot. And then time passes and we're like, what were we so upset about? We were skinny. Like, who cares what the problems of the world were? We were hot. It's like, you know, you have this brief window where you are both an adult and hot. And then that window closes forever. (laughs) And Sue, I think, is the exception here. Sue's like, wait a second. Like, I'm hot and I kind of want to do it with my cousin. And so she's like, fuck it. I don't need to get back to uh, the nunnery by nine o'clock. We'll stay over at the farmer's field. Sue is not willing to believe that she is the weaker sex, just as uh, Martha seems to not believe it. The penalty of the sex wherein they were molded, which by no possible exertion of their willing hearts and abilities could be made strong. Well, that is, is of course, bullshit. And Tom, I think, is saying that's just bullshit. And after me calling bullshit on Tom Hardy so many times, it's great to see that we are in agreement. All these girls in the nunnery are sitting with their faces upturned their beautiful young faces upturned unaware of their own beauty thinking of sue thinking of sue who has escaped the gravity of this place there are only two laws gravitation and germination and yet sue has somehow slipped beyond the bounds of this place and yet we already know Laws are laws. She will return. And it says right here, could be made strong while the inexorable laws of nature remain what they are. And he, Sue said last night, there's two laws, gravitation germination. So we've got the gravitation part. She went out. She's coming back. Now we're waiting for the germination part. With whom is she going to germ? We don't know yet. One of the mistresses came in to turn out the lights and before doing so, gave a final glance at Sue's cot, which remained empty, and at her little dressing table at the foot, which, like all the rest, was ornamented with various girlish trifles, framed photographs being not the least conspicuous among them. Sue's table had a moderate show, two men in their filigree and velvet frames standing together beside her looking-glass. "'Who are these men, did she ever say?' asked the mistress. "'Strictly speaking, relations portraits only are allowed on these tables, you know. "'One, the middle-aged man,' said a student in the next bed, "'is the schoolmaster she served under, Mr. Phillotson. "'And the other, this undergraduate in cap and gown, who is he? "'He is a friend, or was. "'She has never told his name. "'Well, hold on a second. Is this new information? Undergraduate cap and gown. Well, we know that's not Jude, right? Because Jude has never had a cap and gown. Was it either of these two who came for her? No. Your church was not the undergraduate. Quite. He was a young man with a black beard the lights were promptly extinguished until they fell asleep. The girls indulged in conjectures about Sue and wondered what games she had carried on in London and at Christminster before she came here. Some of the more restless ones getting out of bed and looking from the mullioned windows at the vast west front of the cathedral opposite and the spire rising behind it. So we've just learned some important new information, which has been hidden from us this entire time. Tom, you rascal. There was somebody else in Sue's life, perhaps in London, an undergraduate with cap and gown to whom she is so fondly bound that she keeps his photograph there on her dressing table among her various girlish trifles. And strictly speaking, she is not supposed to have that photograph there. Phillotson, in okay. He's the schoolmaster she served under. Perhaps it is a bit of a tribute. That is why that is allowed. They don't know that she's engaged to him. But who is this mysterious man? Who is the undergraduate in cap and gown? And what has become of him? Well, that's a new plot point. When they awoke the next morning, they glanced into Sue's nook to find it still without a tenant. After the early lessons by gaslight, in half toilet, what does that mean? Half toilet. Half toilet. Eh, who cares? And when they had come up to dress for breakfast, the bell of the entrance gate was heard to ring loudly. Yeah. I bet it, it probably echoed through the entire place and they all, all their ears turned to it, thinking to themselves, well, that's not the UPS guy because he doesn't come till later. I think we all know who that is. The mistress of the dormitory went away and presently came back to say that the principal's orders were that nobody was to speak to Pridehead without permission. So, Dead woman walking, apparently, there at the nunnery. When, accordingly, Sue came into the dormitory to hastily tidy herself, looking flushed and tired, she went to her cubicle in silence, none of them coming out to greet her or to make inquiry. When they had gone downstairs, they found that she did not follow them into the dining hall to breakfast, and they then learnt That she had been severely reprimanded and ordered to a solitary room for a week, there to be confined and take her meals and do all her reading. At this, the seventy murmured, the sentence being, they thought, too severe. A round robin was prepared and sent in to the principal, asking for a remission of Sue's punishment. No notice was taken. Towards evening, when the geography mistress began dictating her subject, the girls in the class sat with folded arms. Well, the girls are staging a little sit-in on Sue's behalf, aren't they? Uh, Sue has been given uh, solitary confinement for a week, Honestly, that sounds pretty great. I mean, she's got her books. She can do her reading. So all she has to do, she just gets to hang out in this solitary room for a week to be confined. She gets meals. She gets to do her reading. Lovely. Absolutely lovely. Like a little week-long respite from the nunnery. It sounds pretty fucking fantastic. But the girls are like, oh, this will never do. All she did was stay out all night with some mystery man. Isn't that something that all of us want to do? Well, the school knows that. The school knows that's what all the girls want to do, which is why her punishment was so severe as a warning to the others. And so they're not going to do it. They're, they're like, yeah, we're not doing your stupid geography until Sue gets released from her cage. And wouldn't it be nice if we all had that kind of solidarity from our peers? I never did. I and mean, I never offered it to anybody. Somebody gets punished, fuck them. You mean that you are not going to work? said the mistress at last. I may as well tell you that it has been ascertained that the young man Bridehead stayed out with was not her cousin for the very good reason that she has no such relative. We have written to Christminster to ascertain. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean he's not her cousin? Are we about to learn something else? Are they, in fact, not related? If so, that would be huge news. I mean, if he's not her cousin, then they can, a huge impediment to them boning is removed. They can bone without fear of making monster babies. I'm not sure I, am not sure I understand where this is going. We are willing to take her word, said the head girl. This young man was discharged from his work at Christminster for drunkenness and blasphemy in public houses, and he has come here to live entirely to be near her. However, they remained stolid and motionless, and the mistress left the room to inquire from her superiors what was to be done. Presently, towards dusk, the pupils, as they sat, heard I'm turning the page heard exclamations from the first year's girls in an adjoining classroom and one rushed in to say that Sue Bridehead had got out of the back window of the room in which she had been confined escaped in the dark across the lawn and disappeared how she had managed to get out of the garden nobody could tell as it was bounded by the river at the bottom and the side door was locked. They went and looked at the empty room, the casement between the middle mullions of which stood open. The lawn was again searched with a lantern, every bush and shrub being examined, but she was nowhere hidden. Then the porter of the front gate was interrogated, and on reflection, he said that he remembered hearing a sort of splashing in the stream at the back, but he had taken no notice, thinking some ducks had come down to the river from above." she must have walked through the river said a mistress or drowned it herself said the porter the mind of the matron was horrified not so much at the possible death of sue as at the possible half column detailing that event in all the newspapers which added to the scandal of the year before would give the college an unenviable notoriety for many months to come More lanterns were procured and the river examined and then At last, on the opposite shore, which was open to the fields, some little boot tracks were discerned in the mud, which left no doubt that the too excitable girl had waded through a depth of water reaching nearly to her shoulders, my God, for this was the chief river of the country and was mentioned in all the geography books with respect. As Sue had not brought disgrace upon the school by drowning herself, the matron began to speak superciliously of her and to express gladness that she was gone so um all right i mean that's a natural place to take a break somebody's gone let's be gone for a second take a break and then uh we'll get to the rest of the chapter when we return
0: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you
2: In 2018, Earwolf published 1,785 episodes, over 1,591 hours. That's 66 days worth of podcast listening. Since you probably don't have that kind of time, all of the hosts and producers here at Earwolf chose their favorite episode of their show this year and made a playlist for you. Go see if your favorite episode made the cut and check out some new shows. What better place to start than at the very best EP of the year. Just go to earwolf.com slash picks, that's P I C K S, to see all the selections. Again, that's earwolf.com slash picks. Picks. All of these episodes are out from behind the paywall and Stitcher Premium members, there's a special version of the playlist just for you. Just search Stitcher for Earwolf Pack Picks 2018. Thank you all for a great year of great podcasts and we want to hear your favorites. I know for my podcast, uh, my favorite is the one where I'm reading Jude the Obscure out loud. And commenting on it as I go. But tell us your favorite episodes of 2018 with the hashtag Picks. Hi, we're back on Obscure. And so now there's a, there's a little bit of dialogue and a little bit of back and forth here between Jude and Sue. So I thought, you know what? Let's mix it up a little bit. Let's bring on somebody to help us out with the reading, right? I did it before, I did it once with Kevin Allison. And now I'm going to do it with my dear friend, Paget Brewster, who you might know from Criminal Minds and Community. I know her from another period cuz we were in that together. And she's one of she's one of the best. Paget, hi, how are you?
1: I'm great. Well, so is there anything I should
2: know about this? No, okay, so I'll just I'll briefly tell you what this is. This is a moment where Jude is Jude, Jude and Sue are cousins, and Jude oh. and Jude is kind of in love with Sue, and it's very unclear what's going on with Sue because in my in my estimation, she's being a little bit of a tease with Jude, and she she hates herself. but whatever. I, you don't need, you don't need to know anything. It's just words. It's just okay. words. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Uh, all right, I'll begin. On the self same evening, Jude sat in his lodgings by the close gate. Often at this hour, after dusk, he would enter the silent close, and that's where uh, uh, Sue lives in the close there, and stand opposite the house that contained Sue, and watch the shadows of the girl's heads passing to and fro upon upon the blinds, in which he had nothing else to do. But to sit reading and learning all day what many of the thoughtless inmates despise, because all Jude wants to do is get educated and he can't, he he can't for various financial and social reasons. But tonight, having finished tea and brushed himself up, he was deep in the perusal of the 29th volume of Pusey's Library of the Fathers, uh, which I know you have read, Paget, a set of books which he had purchased of a second-hand dealer at a price that seemed to him to be one of miraculous cheapness for that invaluable work. He fancied he heard something rattle lightly against his window. Then he heard it again. Certainly, somebody had thrown gravel. He rose and gently lifted the sash. Jude? Sue?
1: Yes, it is. Can I come up without being seen?
2: Oh, yes.
1: Then don't come down, shut the window.
2: Jude waited, knowing that she could enter easily enough, the front door being opened merely by a knob which anybody could turn, as in most old country towns. He palpitated at the thought that she had fled to him in her trouble as he had fled to her in his. What counterparts they were. He unlatched the door of his room, Heard a stealthy rustle on the dark stairs, and in a moment she appeared in the light of his lamp. I should tell you, uh, Paget, she's basically uh, just run away from college. Ah. Yeah, I probably should have told you that. She's 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 she. It's like a nunnery almost. She's basically just escaped a nunnery.
1: Oh, I didn't know if she was a teacher or a student. Or- she, yeah,
2: she's uh she's she's learning how to become a kind of minister. Not quite a minister, but a minister. And uh, and she is she is betrothed. She's engaged to Jude's old teacher, Mr. Phillotson. Oh, it's a lot. Scandal. Uh, He went up, meaning Jude went up to seize her hand and found she was clammy as a marine deity and that her clothes clung to her like the robes upon the figures in the Parthenon frieze.
1: Oh, I'm so cold. She said through her chattering teeth, "Can I come by your fire, Jude?" She crossed to his little grate and very little fire. But as the water dripped from her as she moved, the idea of drying herself was absurd.
2: "Whatever have you done, darling?" he asked with alarm, the tender epithet sleep, uh, slipping out un- unawares. Uh he you know, she's acting like she doesn't know that he's in love with her. This is, she's kind of a, she's a cock tease. She's she's acting like she doesn't know that Jude's in love with her. And this has been a source of endless consternation for me because I maintain that of course she knows and that she loves it, but she does not really return his affections. Ah. So when he says, darling, it's a little slip of the tongue there.
1: Walked through the largest river in the county. That's what I've done. They locked me up for being out with you, and it seemed so unjust that I couldn't bear it. So I got out of the window and escaped across the stream. She had begun the explanation in her usual slightly independent tones. But before she had finished, the thin pink lips trembled, and she could hardly refrain from crying.
2: Dear Sue, you must take off all your things and let me see. You must borrow some from the landlady. I'll ask her.
1: No, no, don't let her know, for God's sake. We're so near the school that they'll come after me.
2: Well, then you must put on mine. You don't mind? Oh, no. My Sunday suit, you know, it is close here. In fact, everything was close and handy in Jude's single chamber because there was not room for it to be otherwise. He opened a drawer, took out his best dark suit, and giving the garments a shake, said, Now how long shall I give you?
1: Ten minutes. Ten minutes.
2: Jude left the room and went into the street where he walked up and down. A clock struck half past seven, and he returned. Sitting in his only armchair, he saw a slim and fragile being masquerading as himself on a Sunday, so pathetic in her defenselessness that his heart felt big with the sense of it. On two other chairs before the fire were her wet garments. She blushed as he sat down beside her, but only for a moment.
1: I suppose, Jude, it is odd that you should see me like this and all my things hanging there. Yet what nonsense. They're only a woman's clothes, sexless cloth and linen. I wish I didn't feel so so ill and sick. Will you try my clothes now? Please do, Jude. And I'll get a lodging by and by. It's not late yet.
2: Do you hear how she, do you, do you, you can hear how she's being at oh, yeah. right? I mean, it's just ridiculous.
1: Oh, look at my clothes hanging right. there.
2: Right. I mean, it's, it. it ugh, I get very annoyed with Thomas Hardy for pretending that she doesn't know or for allowing us to think that she doesn't know. I'm not sure what Hardy's game is right now, but it's very annoying to me. Uh, So she's saying, oh, yeah, I'll no, It's okay. I'll just go. I'll just go. And it'll be fine. And and of course, she's waiting for him. She's fishing. And he goes, no, you shan't. If you are ill, you must stay here. Dear, dear Sue, what can I get for you?
1: I don't know. I can't help shivering. (laughs) Could get warm.
2: Jude put on her his greatcoat in addition, and then ran out to the nearest public house whence he returned with a little bottle in his hand. Here's six of best brandy. Now you drink it, dear, all of it.
1: I can't out of the bottle, can I?
2: Right, right. I mean, come on! <laughs> That's the scandalous part for her. She just escaped a nunnery, went, ran through a river, climbed up His, you know, snuck into his house and she's like, oh, no, but I couldn't drink out of the bottle. Jude (laughs) fetched the glass from the dressing table and administered the spirit in some water.
1: She gasped a little, but gulped it down and lay back in the armchair. She then began to relate circumstantially her experiences since they had parted. But in the middle of her story, her voice faltered, her head nodded and she ceased she was in a sound sleep.
2: Jude, dying of anxiety, lest she should have caught a chill which might permanently injure her, was glad to hear the regular breathing. He softly went nearer to her and observed that a warm flush now rose her hitherto blue cheeks and felt that her hanging hand was no longer cold. Then he stood with his back to the fire regarding her and saw in her Almost a divinity. I mean, that's lovely. It's, it is, but this
1: is tragic, right? He he doesn't pick uh, the best ladies for him.
2: I, I you know well. It's hard to say. I mean, he certainly didn't the first time. And then he met his cousin, and it's very unclear to me as to her true nature. There's a lot going on with Sue under the surface that, to me, is very appealing. And looking at from a modern lens. But to Jude and to his contemporaries, it's somewhat scandalous. I mean, just, you know, escaping the nunnery and wading through the river, that's a little bit scandalous. She stayed out with him all night the night before. Also scandalous. They didn't do anything, but... She got busted for it, she, right? She got big time busted for it.
1: They locked her up for being out with her.
2: Yes. She's a, she's a libertine at heart, but you can't be in 1895. If you're a lady.
1: Unchaperoned.
2: Unchaperoned indeed. Well, you did great work and I can't thank you enough for taking the time.
1: Anytime you want. I like this. I love reading aloud.
2: Thanks, Paget. Bye bye. Bye. Paget Brewster, you guys. I mean, I could not have given you a better Sue Bridehead. And I'm a professional Jude the Obscure reader. And that is the end of chapter three. And what a chapter it was filled with highs and lows and highs and mediums. We didn't get quite the eroticism that we had been promised in the last episode, but we did get some high spirited kicks and thrills in this episode. So slightly, slightly different. But again, we're left with hope. Because Sue has escaped the gravity of the nunnery. Will it remain? I don't know. But the gravity of these places is pretty strong. Uh, The gravity of the nunnery is one thing. The gravity of all of society is quite another. And Jude not being her cousin? A lot of mysteries. A lot of uh, doors have opened here with question marks bursting forth. I don't know what's going to happen. And neither do you. But we will find out next time on another pulse-quickening episode of Obscure. Until then, from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at earwolf.com. And subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced. By Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.
0: This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos.
1: This is Raisa Lisea,
0: and this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Spanish aquí presents.
1: We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy.
0: Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and qué lo qué.